As I said a little bit ago, it just feels really great to be here. I'm thankful to be with you this week, that the Lord has blessed us with this day. As has been so beautifully said already by others, this is a day of worship to the Lord. This is about Jesus. The Lord in His great brilliance has built the church to start our week. Every week of our lives starts remembering the sacrifice of Jesus that we needed and setting ourselves up for a successful week of spiritual growth. And I'm thankful for the small part that you've allowed me to play in that, for the eldership here, for allowing me to come back. And I hope and trust that you're able to engage in this study, understand it, and use it. We will be in Ephesians 5 to get started, so you may open your Bibles there. Just a couple of minutes I'll take to remind you, and we'll do this every time, of exactly what we're trying to accomplish this week. We want to build generational faith. Everyone in this room wants to get to heaven, and we want to do whatever it takes to do that. But also, we want our children, if you're here today, our infants who grow up, we want everyone in our family to get to heaven. I told you this morning in the class, it's like the only thing left for me. I don't know. There's some other neat things that I might like to try. I was at the airport last night, and I saw somebody carrying a Disneyland Paris bag, and I was like, okay, maybe that that would be kind of cool. But really, I don't care if I ever do that. I don't care if I ever see that place. I've got four children, 18, 16, 8, and 6. I have to give them the best possible chance to serve God for the duration of their lives. I understand there are children brought up in Christian homes who fall away. I understand there are children brought up in devastating homes who are terrifically faithful. But the odds are against those results, and I owe my children a little bit more than giving them long odds of getting to heaven. So we want to do everything we can. Take every advantage possible, and specifically today we're talking about the family. So oftentimes, as goes the family, goes those who are raised by that family. As I mentioned this morning, the strongest influence in your children's lives are what they're seeing every morning, every afternoon, every night, all the time in our families. So this morning we just talked about each person, whether you're young or older, husband or wife, aunt or uncle, If you are willing to own that your choices are going to make maybe all the difference, you're in the right place. Your ability to grow in your faith will help everyone else's faith in some way beyond even what you can understand. Your ability to take responsibility for cause and effect. When you do something, there's a reaction to that thing. will start to help those reactions get better. And of course, as we finish this morning, your ability to admit when you need to change and change causes positive change. That's where we began. For the rest of this morning session, we're going to be talking about marriage in particular. Ephesians 5 talks about marriage. Marriage is a powerful tool of having an effect on your kids. As I said, I could give you a bunch of examples of that, but I'll just give you one. About four months ago, this cowboy walks into our church building. I'm talking about, you guys think in Texas we're all cowboys. We're not, okay? I don't have any boots. I don't have a cowboy hat. But in comes Mr. Boots, buckle, cowboy hat, hangs that hat on a little thing right there, comes in and says hello. Well, I have this foolish idea that I should tell this young college student that he needs to meet my daughter. I don't know what I was thinking. I played it through my mind many times since then. So they met, basically fell in love. So anyway, long story short, four months later, he's at my house all the time. They're in love. They're both in college, thankfully. Put a little bit of a slowness on the brakes there. But this kid is, is this being recorded? annoying this guy okay this guy opens the door for her every he won't let her get in or out that opening the door when she makes dinner he makes dinner with her he's the first one to get up and wash the i can't even talk about this anymore let's just move on 
wash the dishes. He brings her flowers twice a week, but not like me, not like that twice a year, the Walmart, you know, like a dollar a rose. No, it's like got the boss and the whole thing. And I just don't like this guy. At all. I love this kid. But I, I couldn't imagine like, where's all that coming from? And then who'd I meet? I met his dad. First, because his mother stayed in the car until dad walked around to open the door to let her out. His dad was washing dishes at my house and we invited him over and didn't even know each other. Turns out you're building something. Now, sometimes they go the opposite of what they see, but oftentimes they're drawn back to that influence. All of the yes, ma'am and no, ma'am and yes, sir, that I heard from him, I heard also from his father. So in the beginning stage, that's one of a, a plethora of examples that you're building something here, parents. We're building something. And children will be programmed to grow in a certain way based directly on our input. Now, in Ephesians 5, we learn that if we really want to be good husbands and wives, we want to train them well, then we need to understand some things about our roles. In fact, if I could just say to you that in all of my time hearing sermons on marriage in my life, 90 plus percent of them are about you got to learn the roles. You figure out the roles and you've got it. Wives, here is your role, verse 22. Subject yourself to your own husbands. Submit. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Submit and serve. Husbands, here is your role, verse 25. You love your wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. Now, before I talk negatively about studying roles, I do want to begin by saying that's a very valuable thing to study, but maybe not for the reason that you would think. You see, what you're learning here, and I mentioned this in the class, is that husband-wife relationship is a reflection of what relationship? What is it a reflection of? What is it coming off of? Christ and the church. As Christ loves the church, he loves his wife. As the church subjects herself to the leadership of Christ, so she subjects herself to the leadership of her husband. The first things your children learn about that relationship, where do they learn it? From this relationship. They learn about the way that Christ leads the church by watching a husband lead a wife. That's what they're supposed to be learning. They learn about what it means to subject yourself to the leadership of Christ in its perfect state by watching a wife humbly accommodate the leadership of her imperfect husband. We're training them how to be Christians by our marriages. Have you thought about that? And if our marriages are this really whack, weird, twisted, who wears the pants, you know, all that kind of stuff, and everything's kind of mixed and wrong, then we're giving them this distortion, because they see Ephesians 5 just like you do. I mean, they, they sit in the same sermons you sit in. So here's my 15-year-old, my now 16, my 16-year-old son reading, okay, so marriage and the church are kind of similar. Here's what I learned about marriage. This must be what the church is about. Now, let me just ask you something. If the extent of your teenager's knowledge about the way it works between Christ and the church is what they're seeing every evening in your home, how's that going? Do they, have, do they have a pretty good idea of what sacrificial love looks like from a leadership position? Do they have a pretty good idea of what submission looks like, even when you don't like it? You know, sometimes they're going to grow up and not like what Jesus said, too. Although he was perfect. Husbands aren't. He was. How are they going to be? Well, I remember in my home, we didn't like what the leadership was doing. We fought it. I think that roles are important because they model something and they train. Other than that, though, I would say that the study of roles, while it has been exhaustively taught by Bob and me and Kevin and everybody else, is just not enough. 
If all we're teaching about marriage is wives, you are to submit, that's who you're supposed to be, and husbands, leaders, we are missing the how. If you don't teach people how to do it, and you just say, here's what you do, and here's why you do it, it's not going to be enough. There is a passage in Scripture that is fantastic for this. In fact, I would say it is the secret gem and jewel for every marriage in this room and on this planet. If you could learn this one passage, two verses, this one passage, it would do more for not only your marriage, but every, and the text is going to tell you this, every relationship you have, everyone you have will be made better by this one passage. Now I'm excited to share it with you today. So we're going to work in that direction. Let's begin with this. We started with this already. We'll talk about this in depth tonight, but we want that passage. Chris, where is that passage? Show it to me. If it will make my home a more godly place, if it will help my spouse change, no. If it will help me grow and be different at whatever age I am, I want to know it. Because it turns out, Psalm 127, no matter how hard you work, how many books you read, how much Dr. Phil you watch, it's not going to help unless God is doing the building. Won't help. I want God to build my home. How does that work? And so what we're going to talk about today is that marriage really, really matters. Marriage is going to make a big difference. Now, I'm going to tell you, this passage is right next to where you think it would be, but it's not where you think it would be. The passage is not found in Ephesians 5 at all, by the way, though I do think Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is really important. And if somebody preaches a sermon on this sometime, don't walk up to him and say, man, that Texas guy said that was a total waste of time. Like, that's not going to help. It will help. It is good, but it's not enough. Now, let me have you turn over here to the other marriage roles passage. You know where that is, right? Me, raised in church, you know where that is. I'm talking about 1 Peter chapter 3. Now we're getting closer, but we're not quite there yet. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, great for marriages, really distinct in terms of how the roles work. Turns out, wives, that even if your husband is not a Christian, he's not doing the right thing. We talked about this this morning. You still have power. You still can affect change. In fact, you add this with passages like 1 Corinthians 7. Ladies, listen carefully. You can be the kind of person who can save your husband's 1 Corinthians 7 and even your children. You could win your children to the Lord without a Christian husband just because you love God. And you start, it's awesome. It's great. but still not enough. Guys get off a little light in 1 Peter 3. You ever notice that? In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it talks about the wise, verse 1, being submissive, and chaste, verse 2, and their adornment, verse 3, and their heart, verse 4. And then it's like, call him Lord. You probably have that part marked out in your Bible, but it's there. Call him Lord like Sarah did. And guys only have verse 7. You know, we get off a little bit easy. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. That doesn't seem all that intense. Okay, fine. Understanding way. As with someone weaker, guys say not a problem, since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. What I find interesting about this text is men get less information, but he ratchets up the intensity kind of quickly for the gentleman, doesn't he? He says, if you don't get your part right, you will have broken off contact with the grace of your God. Now, that's pretty serious stuff. Those are great verses, but we're not here to talk about them. The two key verses, the passage that will fix, it'll fix every broken relationship, is found not in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, 
but in the two verses that follow it. If you remember nothing else this morning, make a notation, make a way of getting back to. We're printing these out, by the way. The, the slides we're printing, which you can pick up after the lesson. And these two slides you're about to see will be printed. The one you're about to see will be printed. Put it somewhere you can find. And if you do nothing else, you're about to see six things. Six-point sermon, right? Six things. If you would just take your finger and touch one of these every morning this week, any one you want of the six, pick one, and say, today, this is how I will approach my marriage. You will find it unbelievable, the things that will change in a very short period of time. It's great. Let's read it together. Pick up with me in verse 8, please. Verse 8. To sum up, all of you be, and remember, I'm reading from the New American Standard, could be a little bit different. I'll try to note that as we go. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. There it is. That's it. We can cancel the week if you want. Like, this is it. Everything else we're going to talk about is going to fit. Somehow, you're going to make it live through these six things. Now, what I want you to know, you might be thinking, well, I'm not married or uh, no longer married or a long way away from marriage. Well, here's some really cool news. You see the first part of verse 8? It doesn't say to sum up husbands and wives be. It says to sum up all of you be. This is talking about a lot of relationships. Go back a little bit in the text, like in chapter 2 and verse 12. Let me just back up for you. Before he even mentioned marriage, in chapter 2, verse 12, he talked about how should you interact with the world? How should you interact with people that you want to save, with the lost generation around you? How should I interact with the Gentiles? The answer is found in our text. How should I interact with the government, verse 13? What should my attitude be about government? How should I approach politicians and policies? The answer is found in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Servants, verse 18, to their masters and masters to their servants. Authority roles, bosses and employees and employers and neighbors and enemies. You name it. You name it. These are the six things that make up the secret to transforming those relationships. You might be sitting there thinking, I can't transform that relationship because most of it's the other person's fault. I'm just going to get in a time machine. We're going to back up an hour and a half. We're going to study that stuff this morning again. Because it turns out you're much more powerful than you think that you are. You make much more of an impression than you can even imagine if you let God do the work. So let's take a look at this. We're just going to jump right in. Six things. Go with me to 1 Peter 3. We're going to talk about each one. I'll note it and define it a little bit, illustrate it a bit, try to take you to at least one other passage, and I'll note this in case your translation's different. For the most part, the, the other passages we'll be traveling to use the same word that's used there. It's a great way to kind of figure out a little bit more about a word. The, the original word that's used there, we're going to see where it's used somewhere else. Here's the first thing. Number one, want to make it better? You need to be in pursuit of harmony. This word means, King James Version, become of one mind. It is defined very often as agreeing on things. Now, you might look at that and think, Chris, that's the worst possible first point you could have possibly made. If we agreed on stuff, we'd have a better marriage. If you weren't fighting about things all the time, so you're just going to come right out of the box and say, okay, step one, get on the same page. Well, duh. I don't know how to get on the same page. Let's talk a little bit more about that. 
First of all, what I want you to understand is it's the pursuit of harmony that leads to harmony. This idea of, okay, let's just get on the same page and it happen all at once. It won't happen. You have to decide where can we go in our relationship to the point where we did agree. Because here's what's really interesting in counseling sessions. Married people come in and they say, we don't agree on anything. That has never one single time been true. They don't agree on some things, but they agree on a lot of other things. If they're both Christians, they agree that there's a God, and they agree that the Bible's the Word of God, and they agree that Jesus... They don't ever talk about stuff they agree on, though. They want to talk about stuff in which they don't agree. If you're interested in harmony, what you have to do is find out what do we still agree on? What do we still have in common? Let's start with what we love and like and know about each other, and then build from there. I sometimes give the example, I'm wearing the wrong jacket today. I couldn't find a zipped jacket suit. But it's almost like, I used to use this example of zipping a jacket. If you go out and you got a zip-up jacket and it's cold outside and you're like, I'm going to zip this jacket. And you just pull it together really hard and let it go. It stays together, doesn't it? Right? No? So you, you pull it together again. You hold it together really tight like that. And then you let it go and it stays together. Isn't that the way zip jackets work? No, they don't. No matter how much you try to pull them together, they're not in harmony. You can hold it together. You can bound it up together. When you let it go, it comes apart. How do you zip a jacket? You've got to go down to the very bottom at its most fundamental pieces where it just naturally fits in. That little thing goes into that little thing. And it just naturally goes in. And you start with an easy beginning point. And you agree. And then you agree on another thing and another thing and another thing. And you start from a point of easy connection. And you end up bringing something together that looked like it was impossible to unite. I'm telling you, that's the way conversations have to happen in marriage. Let me give you another passage to help with this. Look in Romans chapter 15. This time it's about brethren. How many of you are downright tired of watching brethren fight about stuff? If I had five hands, I'd raise all five of them. I'm tired of watching brethren fight. I mean, God's people fight about this. They write about that. And they fight about this. And it's like they don't agree on anything. They agree on almost everything. And all they want to do is get together and talk about how dumb you are about some weird sort of appendage idea. Now, that's not the way God's people work. God's people work on the things in which they agree. We live in harmony so that even if we disagree, we start unified on what we do. Verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be, watch this, this is brethren now, not marriage or home, but brethren, be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with, here's our word, one accord, one voice, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me break this down for you, and then we'll move on. If you and your marriage find that you're very rarely on the same page, jacket's about two miles apart, Two things have to exist, and I guarantee you can make it better. You ready? Number one, look at verse six. You have to want to make it better. That's the first thing. If the objective isn't verse six, hey, we need to get back on the same page. I want to get back on the same page. If someone will show us how to do that, let's get back together for our family's sake. If you don't, verse six, want to glorify God with one voice, or you're never going to get there. But if you're a child of God and you say, you know what, I'm tired of us fighting. I want to get there, but we disagree. What I'm saying is, if you would back up and start talking about the things that you do agree about. We do this a lot. we got two teenagers. That's it's kind of fun in a way that, you know, fun has a really different definition in that statement. But anyway, and my wife and I don't always agree on how we handle that. I have an 18-year-old. My 16-year-old son just got a driver's license. All of a sudden, he wants to go to the gym now. Okay. 
We don't agree on everything. But you know how we start our disagreement on what he can do this weekend? We start by talking about what we do agree on. We both agree we want him to stay safe. We both agree on that. We both agree that we don't want him to put him into situations beyond his control. We both agree that the people that he spends time with is a really big factor, so we're going to want to manage that. And we start talking about the things that we are absolutely in alignment with, and it helps us identify the first little notch. I used to remember what these little zipper things are called. I forgot. Where the first little thing is deviated. Okay, this is where our first disagreement occurs. But how far apart is it? And you know what we do? We bring it together. We start with what we agree on. So here's what I'm saying to you. In your marriage, whether it's children and parents or whatever the relationship is, if it's a coworker or a boss, it looks like you're miles apart, start with what you have in common. Build confidence, rapport. Yes, yes, I love yes, yes. If you yes, 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 yes enough, when you say no, they'll say no. <laughs> it's a trick. When we study at home, we have a four-lesson book for evangelism. And the first lesson and a half is all yes, yes. We agree. We agree about Jesus. We agree about God in the Bible. We've agreed for an hour and a half before I first get to a question where they might be inclined to disagree. But we have become agreeable. We trust each other. And they're willing to change their mind. Number one, whatever you believe that you're far apart on, Find a common agreement point and begin building from there. It helps you identify where the weakness is, and it also shows that you're not as far apart as you think you are. Here's the second thing. Go back with me to the text. First of all, I'm looking for a point of harmony, trying to see, wanting to see if we can bring it together. But here's the second thing, very important. There it is, by the way, of one mind and agreeing. The second thing is we are going to have to understand the process of becoming sympathetic. I'm back in our text. It says all of you be harmonious and sympathetic. It means quite simply having compassion upon one another, but it carries a very modern idea of the ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Now, this is very difficult, so follow along. I'm going to go really slow on this. Very difficult for us, and by us, I mean me. It's not about me right now. It's not about how I see it, how I want it, or what it looks like. For this moment in time, I have shut down all of my inputs and ideas, and I am placing myself in your mind, and I want to see it from your side. I want to see myself. This is a big one. You want to take this thing to the next level? Next level sympathy, married people, is the ability to see yourself and hear your own words from your spouse's ears and eyes. The ability to have compassion because you genuinely have denied yourself and looked towards them. Jesus is the perfect example of this. Go to Hebrews, please. I need you in the book of Hebrews and chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, we learn about our high priest. You know this passage. Same word is used here. Same word with Jesus, also used for our marriages. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15... We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Well, why is he able to do that? But he is one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love going to Jesus in prayer, through Jesus to God. To the Father. When I go to Jesus, I know that He's going to understand what I'm saying. He's going to understand why I'm saying it. He understands what I'm feeling right now. He has given His attention to me, and He's willing to make it about what I need to share. I believe that every time I go to God in prayer. The question is, do I believe that when I have conversations with my wife? 
Does she believe that when she has a conversation with me? Is it possible for me to get out of my own place and see it from her side, understand what her day was like, what she has faced? And by the way, what it's like to be married to me? That's not something I've ever experienced. What's it like to be my wife? I mean, I use my hands like this at home. Like, it's really annoying to everyone. What's that like? And then how would I uh, react or respond? Let me show you another passage that really helps here. Go to Philippians chapter 2. I was reading through this this morning and thought, I really want to add this passage. Philippians chapter 2. We've got to get out of our own head. It can't be about me all the time and also be about you. And so in this text, it says in verse 3, it's talking about brethren again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then, of course, he says, you just want to be like Jesus on this. Jesus emptied himself of his position and he took your position. He emptied himself, watch this carefully, of his position so that he could put himself in your position. So he would know exactly what you're dealing with and exactly how to defeat it and exactly how to help you. There are men, and I pick on men a lot because, like I said, that's what I am. But there are men, verse 3, that have not considered their wives more important than themselves in maybe ever. It's sad to see the story. Listen, gentlemen, if we want to be better servants... We need to find out what she's feeling. Same with you, ladies. Same with our young people as well. What's it like to be your parents? What's it like to deal with what they're dealing with or carry the burdens that they're carrying? And how does that scowl on your face look from their side of things? And how would a smile change the game? Number two, take a moment. I mean, just pick a day this week. Don't tell your spouse what day it is. Just pick a day and say, all day today, when I'm with this person I want to be thinking about what they've done, what they're dealing with, how they're feeling, what it all looks like to them. And you'll know exactly what to say next because you'll know exactly what they need. That's what it's like with Jesus. And that's what it should be like for us as well. Go back to our text. We're building a list, building a list that is foolproof and absolute. Find some common ground and build from there. Take a few minutes and just see it from their perspective. And then number three, I use this one probably most of all, by the way. Number three, be brotherly. The text said, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, and brotherly. Now, the definition here is really simple. It means love this person like you love a brother in Christ. In fact, if you'll back up to verse 7, it's pretty much exactly what husbands were told. It would be the same for wives. But verse 7 says, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, treat her like she's one of your brothers in Christ, whether she's a Christian or not, might be the idea in verse 7. Now, just to be really clear on what we're talking about, go ahead and take a look at 1 Peter 1. You're not that far away. If you'll go back just a little bit into 1 Peter chapter 1, let's be clear that we know what it means to love like brethren. In verse 22, same wording. Since you have an obedience to the truth, 1 Peter 1, 22, purified your souls for the sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. It's fervent. It's from the heart. It's built by God. You love your brethren. Now you would think, you would think, that quite naturally, that same love would exist in all marriages. I don't know why it doesn't, 
A lot of times it doesn't. Maybe because you think, well, they're always going to be there and they're not going to leave. You know, I'm a member of the church. We don't divorce. There may be things almost worse than that. Not in terms of implications and you shouldn't divorce, but being together and not loving one another is torture in and of itself. We need to love like brethren. Now, let me just cut to the chase on how you do this. Really simple. I'm going to cut to it. You ready? You pick. This is easy. Easy to do. You can make changes immediately. You pick the sweetest, kindest, most warm and wonderful older person. If you're the oldest person in the room, I'm sorry I've offended you here. Older person in this church whom you just love. Like you come in and you see him or her. For me, it's Mr. Eugene McClenney, 92 years old, back in Lindell, Texas. Eugene walks in, I smile. I quit what I'm doing. I go give Eugene a handshake. Sometimes he gives me a hug. Eugene has told me the longest stories. I mean, 92-year stories, and I just listen to him. Eugene has sat down in my office and raked me over the coals before. Deserved, probably. And I was thankful that he was willing to meet with me and do that. I love him. I would never, not ever, not for any reason at all, hurt that man. He is sweet and kind and wonderful. You will see people in the church who treat someone in the assembly just like that. I mean, they're so sweet. There's no way you'd be angry with them. Get in the car, drive home with their spouse, and it's gone. My parents aren't here today. Go ahead and pause this next part, Jason. My parents are doing, they're doing pretty well. They worship there with us in Lindell. I'm really proud of them. They've grown a lot. But you know, I remember when I was young. Remember, this is about raising Christian kids and what they see. I remember when I was young, I mean, my parents would be in the living room just going at each other. I mean, she'd ask him to do the mildest of things, and he acted like it was, you know, climbing the, you know, the biggest mountain in, in, in the world. And they were fighting and arguing and bantering and threatening. And I mean, I'm just sitting there watching them thinking, well, I guess that's the way it works. And then the phone would ring, and my dad would be like, Hello? And this sweet older sister, her, I mean, one time, like her air conditioner just fell through her trailer roof down the floor, and he was about to watch some ball game or something, which by the way, I mean, he wasn't even willing to take out the garbage over here. I'm watching the game for her. Hangs up the phone. We didn't even have DVR back then, <laughs> right? Leaves the game, spends the next four hours and 300 bucks fixing her entire system, like puts it back up, the whole thing. What's going on there? That's what I want to know. I don't have an answer for that, by the way. But I'm telling you that if he would project, and he's done so much better, I'm really proud of him, project that same kind attention for your brother or sister and just give that to your spouse. Treat them that way. Verse 7 teaches it. Verse 8 teaches it as well. That would be it. So here it is. Ready? If you wouldn't say it that way to Mr. Eugene, insert name, don't say it that way to your parents. Don't say it that way to your kids. We're going to talk about discipline tomorrow night. I'm not a yeller. I'll be honest with you. This is a new American Standard Bible word, so I'm not cursing here. Yelling is stupid. Yelling to me says I have no control, and this is about me now, and I just want to get something out here. I think it's just really dumb. I didn't mean to say that, but I said it, and I kind of meant to say it. What if we, instead of losing our cool and our temper and forcing our way, what if we treated them with the same measure of kindness? It'll make a big, big 
difference and fast. Let me show you something else. Go back with me. First Peter three. We have three more to look at. Number one, let's find the same page. It's there. And let's start turning from there. Number two, can I just see it from your place for a little while and do something about that? Number three, treat them like Mr. Eugene. And then number four, it's a simple idea, but I want to build on it a little bit. Just be kind. I think we've already kind of talked about that a little bit, being kind or tender hearted. But I'll tell you, my favorite sermon to preach on marriage is called Be Kind. I mean, that's it. You be nice, you be cordial, you be respectful. I don't know what it is about marriage and why that goes away over time, but that's where it's needed the most. But I want to add a little element to that. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, please. You ought to be in Ephesians 4. This particular word for kind-hearted or tender-hearted is not used that often in the New Testament. In fact, I think in this particular form, it's only used in this one place. So we need to use it well. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. Now, while you're reading this, it applies to the way you deal with your brethren and everything else. But I want you thinking about your home life right now, what you're building, what your kids are seeing. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, watch this. Be kind to one another. Now, here's our actual word. Tender hearted. But this is what I want you to see in addition. Don't forget this next part forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There are a lot of things we could talk about today on just being nice, being kind, being tender, but I only want you to think about one derivative of that. The ability to truly forgive that person. That's the thing about marriage, isn't it? That's, I, I figured it out. I didn't have it. I just got it. I just figured this out. Somebody write this down. It's that we have a long history. A lot of things have been said. A lot of mistakes have been made. A lot of scar tissue still exists. That's it, isn't it? And because it's always there, you know, it's always kind of there. When I was young, I, I liked old Garth Brooks, you know, when I was young. My first CD, CD at Hole in the Middle. He had a song about burying the hatchet, but leaving the handle sticking out. I thought, what in the world does that mean? What is it, hatchets and handles and backyards and buried? I grew up and I figured out what that means. It means you say, I forgive you. I'm going to go dig a hole in the backyard. I'm going to bury it. It's done. It's over. It's past. You're sorry or I'm sorry or I've owned responsibility for that. But I'm going to mark the grave, you know. So that if I need it, if I'm losing an argument, if I'm wrong, instead of all the stuff we studied this morning where you say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I'm going to work on it. Instead, I'm going to go out in the backyard and use my metal detector and find the biggest old hatchet of yours I can find and pull it back out and start throwing it again. It's a defense mechanism. Wait a minute. We're supposed to be confessing our sins and getting better, and instead we're digging up old things to try to win new wars with old battle equipment. Folks, I'm going to tell you right now, the best way to improve any long-term relationship in your life is if it's past, it's gone. If it's forgiven, it's over with. And you can't draw from that or use that against me. If my wife used our past against me, I mean, you guys have known me for like an hour. You're probably like, whoa, let me tell you. We've been married 23 years coming up on it. I'd be done. But look at the rest of the verse. It's just like Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Do you remember this? Matthew 6, people talk about the Lord's Prayer and how, you know, whether you should say thy kingdom come. Hey, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Are you willing and able to say, forgive me as I forgive others? There's the big bell ringer in the Lord's Prayer, by the way. And it's mentioned right here. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, you don't have to raise your hand or whatever. Let me do it this way. Keep your hands down. If maybe you haven't always forgiven your spouse in the way that you pray that Jesus has forgiven you. That's what I thought. 
I made it easy on you. We just need to get better at that. I got to tell you, though, I was told when I first started preaching, uh, I guess 19 years ago, I was 20 something. And I was told, you know, when you turn 35, all these married couples are going to start showing up at your office door going, fix this. I thought, no, you know, well, they did and they do. And that's fine. That's fine. So here we do. We we sit down, you know, and they're always been coming together. And I'm like, what's the problem? And I get this long eruptive thing, you know, and then stops and the more eruptive thing. And here's what's interesting about it. And it's true when, when I'm dealing with things in my family as well. Almost everything I'm told happened before a week ago. It was a month ago. It was a year ago. It's always been going on. It's stuff we're supposedly have forgotten. We supposedly have forgiven. And they're using it. But here's what's really interesting. If you can get a married couple to cut out everything that was longer than 48 hours ago. If it didn't happen more than 48 hours ago and you decide to let it go, you cut it off. When you look at just what just happened, guess what? It's usually not that big a deal. It's usually not that big a deal. Somebody said something dumb. Somebody made a mistake. It's not that big a deal. The problem is the cumulative effect of everything I still remember makes this just that cherry on top. Or the, the what's the old, I hate figures of speech. They almost never make sense. But, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know how much straw is on the camel. But look, you forgot it. Leave the rest of the straw. It's gone. You burned it up. Now you're really just dealing with one piece of straw. Anybody can figure that out. Here's what I'm telling you. Number four, I'm telling you to forgive for real. And you're going to need to do, if that's a problem for you, you're going to need to do a lot of praying. Because only when you are in tune with the nature of Christ's grace and mercy in your life will you truly understand this. But remember, all along the way, you're teaching your kids stuff. What if my children's understanding of the way God's forgiveness works was what they saw between Summer and me in the way we forgive? Can you follow me? What if everything they understood about this, they saw here? I've got news for you. That's how they learn it. Number five, let's keep going. Number five, oh, I like this. Humble or humble in spirit, all right? Humble in spirit. Talking about the end of verse eight. We'll look at this one rather swiftly here. End of verse eight. This idea comes from this sense of a deep sense of littleness. I really like that idea. It's kind of similar to sympathy, except it's not so much just putting yourself in their place, it's more like, what are you going to do about that? Now that you have a better understanding, you made yourself little and they're big. One of the big things I've been working on the last year or so with the kind of the ESM, the Excel Still More stuff, is deciding that I am the least important person in every room I walk in. doesn't always work out. I don't always get it right. But you know, if you're the least important person in every room you walk in, you're going to start picking up on a lot of things going on in other people's lives. You're going to be learning a lot of things and figuring out a lot of things. But if you're the most important person in the room, who cares what everybody else is going through? I'm just going to wait for them to ask about me. That just won't work. We need to be humble and lowly and little in spirit. Let me show you this word in one spot. Go to Acts 28. Let's go to Acts 28. You could also do Philippians 2, but I want to get to Acts 28 for this. Same idea there about selflessness, etc., But look with me in verse 7. I like this story. This is the story of the Apostle Paul, you remember? He lands on this island, you know, and he shakes off this serpent. It's a really interesting story. But here's what happens in verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading men of the island, namely Publius, who welcomed us. Now, watch this. Our phrase, humble in spirit, I'm reading from the New American Standard, is translated this way. Who welcomed us and entertained us courteously 
for three days. For three days, he said, I just want to take care of you. It's not about me, the leader of this people. We want to feed you. We want to clothe you. We want to help you. For three days, all we're going to do is take care of you. I got to tell you, there are certain marriages out there where that's not ever happened for three hours. Where some mate might find it impossible for even a couple of minutes to just make it about you. Now, I have a little thing to ask you to do, but it's not really going to work because your spouse is probably here. But, you know, some people listen, some people don't. But, you know, why don't you try this this week? I put this in an episode last year, and I've been working on it myself about once a week. Just go to the door, gentlemen or ladies, either way, young people too, if you want to build the relationship with your parents, and put your hand on the doorknob or door thing or whatever, and before you open it, you say three words. Let me talk to the men. You say three words. Four words. Tonight or today, she comes first. And you open the door. And you don't sit on the couch and turn on the TV. You go find out what she's got going on. And if she's cooking, you, oh boy, here comes cowboy again. If she's cooking, you help her out. If she's washing dishes, you help with the dishes. When you sit down and she asks you about your day, this is really going to weird you out. Take 30 seconds talking about your day and then three minutes talking about hers. Now be warned, if you've not done this in a while, at some point she is going to sit down and look you in the eye and say, what did you do? That just means you're on the right track, but you haven't traveled it far enough yet. It means a new habit needs to be formed. If we can become the kind of person who can just do for them. Because look, all this, you guys know the marriage is 50-50 stuff. That's just really weird and wrong. A beautiful marriage is 100-100. My wife just wants to do for me. And I just want to do for her. And guess who gets taken care of? Everybody, every time. That's the kind of attitude that we need. Humble in spirit. Put your hand on the doorknob at some point this week and say... He comes first. They come first. Let me give you one more. One more. It's not always going to go perfectly. If you get all five of these working, I mean, you've really got a cadence going. You're agreeing on stuff, and you see what they're dealing with, and you've got your Eugene McClinney going, the whole deal. You're still going to have problems because that's what we are. We're people who find problems and make mistakes. So I really like this last thing. He said in verse 8, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Now watch this. Not returning insult for insult. You see it? Or evil for evil, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. How many of you know even the best-intentioned people have bad days? And you come in after a really bad day... And you say something you should not have said. I'm convinced of this. You can convince me otherwise. You can try, but you'll probably fail. But you might be able to convince me. But listen, the first wrong word said has never caused a war. The first insult given, the first rude comment, the first inappropriate thing said has never been what burnt the house down. That's like lighting a match and tossing it on the floor. The first response is always where the power lies. Somebody comes in, has a bad day, lights a book of matches, throws them on the floor. Doesn't even care if the carpet is new. Now, you got yourself a problem, but not a disaster. Now, the mate has an opportunity to do something here. There is water in the sink and gasoline in the garage. 
Everything that happens for the rest of the night, and maybe your life, does not depend on the flaming book of matches. It depends on what he or she chooses to do next. If you think of nothing else when it comes to not returning insult for insult or evil for evil, but giving a blessing instead, remember that the true power to shape a night, a friendship, a relationship, is always found in the power of the first response. If they say something rude, you say something diffusing or kind, not something that amplifies it. I, I used to use a gun illustration. I'm still in Alabama. I can probably do that. Texas is like, yeah, gun illustration. Go for it. Here, like this one or like this one? Or like this. All right, anyway, we got, a lot, we got a lot of protection going on in our church there. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the mate just comes in and fires off shotgun blasts. You guys know what that's like? Where it's just, it's just the day was just so good. And, you know, maybe a few pellets hit her in the leg or something. He wasn't aiming at her. He wasn't trying to cause a fight. He just feels crummy. And he wants to air it out for someone. And instead of sitting down and taking it out of his hands, the mate goes to the closet and gets a sniper rifle. And the second shot goes right at the heart. Now you've got a war. You've got problems. We need to be that kind of person. Now, I would say this as we close. Be careful with sarcasm here. It's the one thing that I've had to dig a really deep hole in the backyard and bury is my sarcastic nature as a teenager. I was the worst. But be careful. If she comes in and says, Chris, you dragged mud through the house. You're slaying there on the couch. You're a lazy bum, and I don't know why I married you. And you're like, oh, 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. You just look at her and say, but you're so pretty. It won't work. Okay, sarcasm won't work. Trying to diffuse it won't work. You've got to be willing to own up to your circumstances. But what you could say was, I'm sorry, or I'll do better. If we're willing to do that, I want you back in 1 Peter 3. Let's finish this thing. 1 Peter 3, the beautiful passages follow the clear instruction. If we're willing to look at those six things and be careful about them, let me begin in verse 9, halfway through, and read the rest, and then we're done. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. By the way, marriage, I think Ecclesiastes says it in chapter 9, doesn't it? It says your wife or your husband is the reward. It's this great reward in your life. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil. And do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let me just say this as we conclude. I know some terrific stories of Christians today, wonderful Christians, who were raised in just the most atrocious of divided home lives, and honestly raised in some pretty crummy churches. With a lot of arguing and fighting, but they had the purest, most wonderful heart, and they stood by the Lord. But the percentages of that outcome are very, very low. If you want to give your children the best possible chance to learn about healthy relationships, the relationship between Jesus and His church, and how it is to live by faith and do His blessed will, give them a chance. Give them a chance by unity in your marriage, loving kindness, and unity and loving kindness in the church. More on that tomorrow night. I do not anticipate, as we offer this invitation, that the front row will fill up with people. This is a house matter. This is about you and your kids or your parents or your spouse. But just, would you please, would you please just, just work on something? Just work on something. The results are bigger than just you and me. They matter for everybody who is here. If we can help you, though, 
If you're ready to give your life over to God, there's nothing you can do for your children that will show more love than to give your life over to God. It's like that guy I mentioned in class this morning who was insulted when I said, if you don't obey the gospel, you don't love your children until he obeyed the gospel. And then he came to me and said, it was the best thing I've ever done for her. Maybe it's time for you to do the best thing you've ever done for your spouse and your family by obeying the gospel and bringing harmony in the place where it matters most in the arms of Jesus. We can help you. Come now as we stand and sing.